1: on Commons People this week. This is a day of national shame and it has come about because of a hostile environment policy that was begun under her prime minister. Anger over the treatment of the Windrush generation.
2: Given the importance of us pioneering democratic values across the world. Can she clarify her position on this and say how important she thinks it is for Parliament to decide issues yeah. of war and peace?
1: Should MPs get the final say on war?
3: We will not be bullied out of political engagement. Yeah. We are going nowhere and we stand and we'll keep fighting until the evils of anti-Semitism have been removed from our side. Yeah.
1: And MPs speak up for other right people listening. All of this and more on Commons People. Hello, welcome back. Welcome to Commons people. Yes, we're back after the Easter recess, HuffPost Post UK's politics podcast. With me, Owen Bennett, and Mr. Ned Simons is here looking like an Easter egg. Great. <laughs> okay. Kate In what Forre- way does Kate, he look like, like an, an Easter chocolate-y. egg? Kate Forrester, how are you?
3: Not, not great. No, you're, you're
1: ver- really snotty today,
3: Really snotty, yeah. You're very chipper, I don't yeah, like it.
1: Yeah, exactly I like don't that at all. And Mr. Gary. Paul War. Hello, hello, Paul. Hello, hello. He-
2: I had my first Easter eggs. And how did it go after it was, your sugar? There was sugar. no sort of, you know, sugar rush madness. It was, you know, civilised binge. Civilised, civilised
1: binge. you can see them headlining Reading later this year. All right, let's move on, shall we? Um, first of all, the rights of the so-called Windrush generation dominated the political news this week. Thousands of people who came to the UK from the Caribbean after the war with their parents faced deportation and detention as they have been unable to prove they have a legal right to live in the country. Changes to immigration law under the coalition government required people to have documentation to work, rent a home or access benefits including the NHS but some people didn't have any of this documentation and didn't realise they were not classed as British citizens until they applied for passports in recent years. Immigration Minister Caroline Loke suggested on Monday some people might have been deported, although Home Secretary Anne Murad said she was not aware of any cases. Here's Labour's David Lammy in the Commons. How many have been detained as prisoners in their own country? Can she
0: tell the House how many have been denied health? under the National Health Service. How many have denied pensions? How many have lost
1: their job? And before we get to the discussion, I also want to play a clip from Channel 4 News of Sentinel Bristol, whose 57-year-old son, Dexter, died on March the 31st as he tried to prove he was allowed to stay in the UK. He lost his job and was worried he would lose his welfare support. And his mother believes the stress contributed to him collapsing in the streets and dying. Here's the clip.
2: And Miss Theresa May should have another look at the situation she commit in this country, well, if that's the right word, the situation she creates in this country for the Caribbean and even the Africans, for foreigners. You know, she should have another look and she should be ashamed of herself. And all the other MPs that is on her side, they should be ashamed of themselves because we are human beings. I would not accept myself as a foreigner. I'm not a foreigner. This is my home.
1: Politics is often talked about in this kind of almost like ethereal way, isn't it, in Westminster, and it's all very theoretical. This has been a real example of how practical changes can have implications which people just didn't even realise. And what, what do you think of the government response to this, first of all? Because to me, it seems that they've just been one step behind the story all week.
2: Well, it started, didn't it, with them, them being leaden-footed about the whole idea, even of something as basic as meeting Commonwealth leaders to discuss it. I mean, on Sunday night they were telling uh, the Guardian that actually um, there wasn't going to be any meeting between May and Commonwealth leaders to discuss Windrush. That was a rapid U-turn on on Monday. I mean, it's just. The kind of thing that we learn through the week is just perhaps how shambolic the number 10 team still is. Uh, But also Theresa May, how she still operates in a strange way, not like a prime minister, but like a home secretary. It's almost as if she hasn't learned anything. And home secretaries have one job. And you could say that even on that one job, she's, she's got lots of failures and flaws. But PM means being, means being much more agile on a range of issues. And all the goodwill that she built up over Russia and over um, the whole uh, Salisbury issue, and you could say over Syria, in many Labour MPs' eyes, um, has been blown by the Windrush affair. Before we go on to
1: Arad, let's talk a bit more about Theresa May, because she tried at PMQs to turn the attack back on Labour. She said the decision was made to destroy the Windrush landing cards in 2009 under a Labour government. This kind of unraveled quite quickly when actually it was just the business case was created in 2009 by an official and it was signed off in 2010 <clears throat> under the coalition government. Ned, was she right to kind of make that point? Actually, this is something which uh, other governments were involved in, or was trying to play politics with it at this point? Well, I think Not it was, I
0: think, and I think it got her through PMQs, which, you know, in, theoretically should have been a slam dunk for Corbyn, but the fact she got up and apologised before Corbyn could ask her to and then hit him with, well, this was decided by under Labour, it got her through that half an hour, which, by all accounts, should have been a much tougher time for her. But then, like you said, it unravelled. And, and also, even if it was decided under Labour, it was still enacted and carried out under the coalition and under her, her watch. So I don't know how great a defence but it, also it, it surely
2: on an issue like this there are bigger issues than just getting through PM. Right, exactly, exactly. I mean and that's really what I think maybe that's my my point about prime ministers you know prime ministers are supposed to really take responsibility on behalf of the whole country um, on issues like this and just fess up and she could have done much more than that that apology at the beginning it could have been much longer she could have actually made a statement herself um, before PMQs even happened she could have and I think will eventually have to talk about compensation for all these people because it's one thing saying you're sorry but these people you know whether or not in the, the worst case scenario one guy He died while he was waiting for for his status to be sorted out. But other people have been, you know, literally locked up in in detention centres. They've lost their jobs. They've been made homeless. And so surely there's got, at some point, there's going to be some sort of offer of compensation. And if there isn't, the government is going to again be on the back foot. A series of class actions from various lawyers might happen. Well, the Prime Minister's official spokesman said on Monday that
1: there would be reasonable Compensation made, I think, was that, but that's still that caveat seems slightly callous, isn't it? Okay, let's move on to Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, the person who's in the job at the moment. She was kind of quite keen to blame her predecessor, which is a bold move when your predecessor's your boss. Um, saying that it's the hostile environment in in uh, the Home Office and they've been too focused on putting policy before individuals. Uh, is that right, or just Amber Rudd passing the buck? Does she have more questions to answer?
3: Um. Sorry, cold. Um, Amber Rudd, I think, seems to be coming out of this bizarrely much better than Theresa May. And Theresa May's being blamed in terms of rhetoric um, for her um, go home immigration (coughs) vans that were around in, was it 2010, was it? 2012. 2012, which Nick Timothy, her former chief of staff, has claimed this morning she didn't actually sign off and it was signed off when she was away on holiday. Is that right? That's, That's what he's claimed. claiming. That's I mean, the, I mean claiming. these vans
1: went around for about what two months yeah. or something. So I mean, I don't know how long the holiday was. Yeah. Here, but like, she would have noticed at one point that these things had gone on if she if she was so against them as Mr. Nick Timothy goes on about.
3: And also, hasn't somebody unearthed a written question where it says that she was aware of it anyway? Yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, I mean, I think she is being blamed for creating that hostile environment directly by Labour and and opponents and sort of indirectly almost by Amber Rudd as well.
2: I think the, the 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 issue though is that she's got more questions to answer at what point was Amber she aware or Theresa May. no Theresa May right. at what point was she made aware that actually there was a consequence for people who were here legally and had lived here for many years legally as a result of a new crackdown and there's no question it was a crackdown you know that's the whole point the government were very proud of the fact it's a crackdown they thought it was quite a good vote winner they thought it was in tune with a lot of Labour voters as well as Tory voters um, and this is all before the referendum so it's completely separate from Brexit, you know. Um, so, given that they were so proud of this policy, surely at some point those those impact assessments would have come across her desk, and did she see them herself? Because it turns out today that some of them did warn that yes, this could have unintended consequences for people living here. And Amber um, um, uh, Diane Abbott, to a great credit, you know, put out a tweet last night where she questioned Theresa May personally in 2014 and said this will affect people who are not illegal mm. and Theresa may said i'm quite confident that uh, the measures are in place to make sure it wouldn't well that's... how could she be so confident that's the question
0: one of the interesting points, isn't it their defense has been and rudd's defense was older this was targeting hostile environment in quotes was targeting illegal immigrants not legal people not People are allowed to live here. But if you're too incompetent as a government to work out who's an illegal immigrant and who's not, that's just a whole nother problem. You can't, that's not a particularly good defence, I don't think.
2: Well, it's, it's also that this is, there's that phrase, isn't there, which is hard cases make bad law. Actually, in this case, Labour may well want to argue that bad law made the hard cases. In other words, it was driven by the legislation and it wasn't just the fact that it was overzealously interpreted by officials that actually the legislation was something flawed in the legislation. It was too hard line. We're not sure whether or not that will be Labour's position. It might be given that uh, uh, Diane Abbott is in charge but you have to say that wasn't the position of uh, Yvette Cooper. It wasn't the position of the Labour front bench under Ed Miliband. They were, they signed up, they agreed to that um, immigration bill. they and put a, on mugs, didn't they, about how much someone was controlling immigration. And the only only six Labour MPs voted against it, and those included Jeremy Corbyn, Diane Abbott, John McDonnell. David Lammy. And, crucially, the one of the MPs who voted against it was Fiona McTaggart. No one can say she's part of the, the campaign group. No one can say she's an extremist or a lefty. But Fiona McTaggart slough constituency with a lot of these hard cases, Commonwealth cases, You can, you can, it might be worth just Fiona McTaggart saying, look, you know, I thought there might have been a problem here and no one was really listening. Just on a slightly more
1: philosophical question, David Lammy says, you know, if you lie down with dogs, you get fleas, and this is a kind of consequence of the indulging, as he would see it, of the kind of far-right rhetoric, I guess he'd be thinking of things like the Breaking Point, Post of Farage, that kind of thing. Um is there, is there something in that? Well, I mean, I thought Dan Abbott came up with a really good line this week where she said the public are kind of draconian in theory, mm-hmm. but humane in practice, which I thought was a, was a, was a really smart bit of smart Most people, you say, do you want to clamp down on immigration? Oh, of course I do. And then when you say, what about these guys? Oh, God, no, not them. Because actually, when they hear the stories, like, they think of it. Yeah, so and- was Theresa May too, too ready with the
0: draconian bit? Well, I think it's interesting listening to Michael Gove on the Today programme this morning, where always he was is, always, always claiming, you know, that um, how liberal Britain is to do with immigration and how Brexit wasn't about immigration or any kind of, I think, dark was his word, you know, approach to immigrants. That the idea that he's shocked that Brexit might have involved concerns about immigration or this kind of rhetoric is mm. was a bit disingenuous, I thought. And if he really thinks that kind of an anti-immigration kind of wave that's kind of hit the country in the last you know few it's years and made up. it's totally coincidental yeah. whether it's caused by or driven by i think was a bit strange
2: and there's a, I mean it's certainly worth mentioning that if you're a lowly official you're a border agency official if you're getting the rhetoric from on high of you've really got to be tough, this is a government priority, then it's no getting, wonder... Like, migration down. That yeah, kind of stuff, th- yeah, it's no wonder in a way that they're chasing targets. Yeah. Yeah. And when they're chasing targets, the things that the Conservatives actually in opposition were dead against targets because they skew things like in the NHS, They, th- although we haven't heard a lot about that lately. But they were suggesting that those targets, the fact that you were driven to meet this priority of getting migration down... Um, led to some cases where they didn't show enough discretion. And that will be interesting. The UK border agency, is it going to have a review of what it did in these cases, an internal review, or will there be an independent review of it? Lammy, you mentioned Lammy, actually, and I think it's quite interesting. You know, he doesn't want to make himself the story, which is rare in politics. So he's not the one who's sort of sitting down for set-piece interviews right Mm. now saying, you know, aren't I amazing? But David Lammy, it's worth pointing out that, you know, he led the way on Grenfell. He certainly showed some moral leadership when it comes to this issue and put it on the map. And you could say single-handedly forced a lot of this change this week by corralling Tories and others in a cross-party way. Crucial lesson in how cross-party politics works. By doing that, he actually has... Outperformed many shadow cabinet ministers, and maybe it's the time to ask a question you know, when will Jeremy Corbyn give David Lammy a shadow cabinet? He was job? also
0: led the way on the knife crime yeah. um, debate yep, as well, knife recently. Crime only as well. last week. Because
1: yeah. David Lammy, just very, very
2: quickly, he was
1: considered by some, he had a bit of a nickname among some, which was just Calamity Lammy, because he was seen as someone who was always putting his foot in it. And he did that celebrity mastermind we talked about before, where he gave really sort of bizarre answers. And he was seen as someone who ambition perhaps outstretched his ability. But I feel like now, actually, he has been brilliant the past. The past year, over a year, actually uh, uh, just being very, very good holding people to account.
3: Yeah, I think it started with his Channel 4 News interview after Grenfell, when he was so visibly emotional and it was basically something you couldn't argue with, you know, regardless of your political persuasion, the things that he was saying were just so from the heart and I think you know, we've seen this with Corbyn, haven't we? It's part of what captures people's imagination when politicians speak from the heart. So. It's
2: quite interesting because, of course, he did run for London Mayor yeah. years ago and and failed. Um, I bet if he ran for it these days, he'd have a very strong case. Mm. But my point remains, you know, he nominated Jeremy Corbyn. He was one of the 35 who nominated Jeremy Corbyn for the leadership. They didn't actually back him, but he thought he should be on the ballot. And I would have thought at some point there'll be some shadow cabinet job, surely. And if not, then... Is that David Lamy doesn't want to join the Corbyn team, or is it the Corbyn team don't want him? It'd be worth asking.
1: So move on, shall we? Uh, during recess, Theresa May sanctioned the UK to take part in targeted military action against the Syrian government to harm its chemical weapons programme. But should MPs have had a vote on the decision? It was debated endlessly this week as Parliament returned. Here's Labour's Yvette Cooper.
2: Parliament has considered these kinds of complex issues before. We have voted for and against military action, we have got things right and got things wrong and so too has the Executive. And the Prime Minister and her Cabinet appear today to
3: not just be arguing about the circumstances of last week but also to be rejecting the entire principle of consulting, debating and voting in Parliament
2: in advance of military action.
1: I don't want this debate we're going to have now to go anywhere near as long as the debate Parliament had this week about whether. Nine or and a three debate. quarter oh, hours. God, it was tedious beyond belief. I know that people are going to say it's war and I get it, but it... you didn't sit through it all, Paul. I sat through about nine and a half minutes of it. And I don't know, <laughs> right, honestly, um, very quickly. Let's just very quickly about Syria. Ned, was she right? No, no, no. <laughs> but like, she's made a decision not to go to Parliament. Yes. Has that damaged her? I don't feel like it has.
0: I don't, I don't think it has. Um, I think the timing of it was quite coincidental. The fact it was going to happen over a weekend meant she could get away without having a vote or recalling Parliament for it. Um, I should probably learned the lesson from David Cameron holding a vote before, which he obviously regrets doing because he, he lost the vote. Yep. And I think there's, you know, I'm not, I don't, I have, I could see both sides of the, should there be a vote or not? I think for this very limited strike, you know, there is quite a good case to make, you know, do you need a, a it's not uh, we're not going to war. It was a, a one-off strike, um, but it, it's tricky though.
1: I, I, I listened to her as we all did, and the, the point of why this action was needed, I thought, she made a good case for. The point on the the type of action made a good case for. The case for not recalling Parliament. She didn't make any case for that, did she? She didn't set out why she didn't recall violence. There was no... It was just, I didn't do it. I didn't have to Mm. do it. But there wasn't a kind of... Because we had to... I thought that was... And it
2: wasn't really drilled down enough. Well, it was another example of Theresa May. it's similar on the whole Windrush thing. You know, there's a lack of clarity about what our real intentions are. And almost like a, a timidity about saying, well, actually... Telling the truth and being candid, you know, on when it comes to Windrush, she should have been candid. Yeah, I thought it was really worth it sometimes, you know, to be that hard line. And sometimes there'd be some hard cases. But, you know, that's collateral damage and just be honest about it. And on, on Syria, she should have just been honest. Look, I was kind of worried I'd lose the vote. I was uncertain. That's the real reason I didn't hold a vote. And and they also that she should have said, look, I didn't want to create a precedent because we've Believe it or not, it was missed at the time. It was the dog dog days of the Cameron government. It was in April 2016. The referendum was going on. No one really expected Cameron to be toppled. But in April 2016, there's a written ministerial statement from Michael Fallon saying actually something really serious had changed in government policy. We've talked and talked with William Hague about having this law of putting down the fact that the convention of having a vote on military action should be ter- turned into actual a War Powers Act. That was junked in April 2016. But she should have been more explicit about actually the reason for that is because I'm worried that even after a a military strike, it would look odd if I went to Parliament and said, could you please retrospectively approve this after it's happened? And beforehand, she's obviously really worried about ever happening again because of Cameron. And and she's just been honest. I didn't think I had the numbers. As it happens, lots of Labour and Peace stood up and said they would have supported mm. her. She would have had the numbers in spades. There's no question. Uh, this is poor... From the whips head, isn't it, Kate? Because I mean
1: I didn't take much of a ring around from me to speak to some people from Labour in twenty thirteen, followed Ed Miliband, voted down the action. Pat McFadden said to me, Labour MP, it's the vote that haunts him the most from his time as Parliament because he thinks that actually that gave the green light to Assad to carry on using chemical weapons. Other MPs as well equally said, And you know, I kinda of wish I hadn't done it, so really she clearly would have had the numbers.
3: I would yeah, I mean she she almost certainly would have. I think there's still quite a few MPs who Are still umming and are in about which way they would have voted they're still undecided but i think outside in the real world it doesn't really matter whether they had a vote or they didn't because there's lists going around on facebook i've got one in front of me now of the mps who basically said that they would have supported her um and it says these are the mps who need to be strapped to those bombs uh, who voted with the Tories to bomb and kill innocent men, women and children without any proof whatsoever that they, the Syrians, had the nerve chemical weapons. So, I mean... You're on
1: Corbyn's photo paper, not you?
3: Um, <laughs> I mean, but, you know, you read stuff like that. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether they had a meaningful vote on it at the end of the day, really. In terms of sort of when you drill right down into what's being circulated on social media,
1: that leads us very nicely onto the next point, which we're going to come to very very quickly. But we had the nine hours debate, Paul. Was that a waste of time, or was that a good way of everyone standing up and saying, "Oh well, you know, it's terrible,"
2: blah blah. I mean, I don't think it was a waste of time, particularly because um, certainly in the um, Alison McGovern debate. On Monday night and because you heard a lot of MPs like her making the case on behalf of Syrians and her point was, look, you we it's not about our voices, it's about the Syrians voices and they've they've been lost in all this. And Jess Phillips has made that point, too, that I, th- I think that was what I thought was different and new about that debate. Yeah, there was a lot of politicking in some of the other debates about Jeremy Corbyn, aren't you a sort of pacifist you know, uh, nutter from a lot of the Tories, and equally from some of the Labour types, you know, aren't you bloodthirsty you know, tyrants, anyone who wants to touch this military action? Um, so some of that sort of undermined the whole case, and it seemed at times it was just geared to make Corbyn look like uh, he was out of touch with the public. But some of the, the contributions were actually worthwhile. And I thought, actually, the backbenchers were the ones that actually had the best interventions. People like Kevin Brennan, who basically said to Theresa May, look... Your case for saying we, we shouldn't have had a vote on this because it was the element of surprise was blown away by Donald Trump. She had no answer to that. Richard Burden, who's a Labour backbencher, said, what's the difference between, material difference between this and 2013 when Cameron was planning something very similar, a targeted surgical strike, except he was planning it. What's the difference? She hmm. had no answer. So I, I was quite impressed that backbenchers actually did their job. Uh, of course, not all believe that Assad was behind the attack or even
1: there was an attack at all. Here's Labour's Chris Williamson on the BBC's <laughs> Daily Politics. They don't mm. believe that Assad had a motive to indulge
0: in a chemical weapons attack because who, virtually who, did, who, one, who could have done it? Who, who else could uh, have done it? Well and there's also a question about whether indeed there, there was uh, a chemical weapons attack and we've heard... So the, you don't
4: believe a little like I, I guess no, earlier that right, there was a chemical weapons not, attack?
0: Well all we've had
1: what all the prime minister was able to cite were, were were social media posts and hearsay. So not just Chris Williamson who thinks that perhaps it all is not as it seems in Syria, and we are joined now by Chris York, a senior editor at HuffPost UK. Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank C- you. Good to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. It's my debut. Uh, indeed, uh, you've been looking into uh, some uh, academics who have uh, been accused of whitewashing Assad's war crimes by promoting sort of pro-Assad conspiracy theories. Quite interesting. Just tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, sure. So um, I started off a few months ago looking at the White Helmets and then
4: from just kind of perusing Twitter, realised that there were quite a few academics at some pretty big universities like University of um, Edinburgh and uh, Sheffield, who seemed to be retweeting some fairly obscure sources and kind of questioning everything that was going on in Syria. Gas attacks, rescues, saying the White Helmets were like posting fake videos and I thought that was a little bit odd because, you know, you think academics would know a little bit better than that. So I looked into it. Um, and yeah, there's this whole kind of obscure world of these anti-imperialist fringe bloggers and activists who will, I mean, they'll tweet absolutely anything. And um, there's a, uh, these academics have started this working group now to examine it, to bring, they say that they're seeking truth, but all of their sources are based on like pretty, well, they're all pretty dubious. Let's just put it that way.
1: Um, so, uh, when you've gone to them, though, I think you've gone to them. and You've yeah. said, "Hey, yeah. what's going on?" And uh, what's their defence been? They they passionately believe that
4: they are right. They 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 constantly bring up the Iraq War and Libya as examples of Western imperialism and intervention gone wrong, and they completely frame the entire Syrian conflict within that. So. Anything that opposes Western imperialism is good, which is why a lot of these people on one hand support Palestinians in Gaza, but then on the other support Bashar al-Assad, which on the face of it seems pretty weird. But then you realize that it's because they're both technically fighting the West, even though there are like more Palestinians in Syria who have been killed by Assad than there are in Palestine that have been killed by the Israelis over that period of time.
1: We heard a clip of Chris Williamson there, the um, Labour MP. Do you get the sense that these academics feel that they have a representation now in Parliament through people like him? And some people would say the Labour leadership in general. Do you think they feel that got, they're getting a, a fair of the whip now?
4: I would say there are definite tones of this kind of worldview that sees things as very black and white, um, especially on the Labour leadership, yeah. Yeah. Um, this i mean the whole kind of stop the war movement which seems to be more annoyed when britain bombs some airfields than when 400,000 syrian civilians are killed like it's just a bit baffling as to how they kind of justify that and their kind of reasoning behind it. And there's a lot of that in Labour, from what I can see. And
1: former chair of Stop the War course was Jeremy Corbyn. Mm-hmm. But does this is not represent, Paul, just the fact there is there is now, amongst some people, healthy cynicism of what the government tell us when it comes to foreign wars, infused by
2: the fact there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? There's, nothing, there's a big difference between scepticism <clears throat> and cynicism. I think that's the point. And a lot of these people are really very, very bitterly cynical about what happened in Iraq and in Libya, as Chris says. And and that cynicism then bleeds into a blanket disbelief of anything that the West does, anything, and any intelligence that they're given. And, it, you know, the Novichok stuff, even though it's independent um, weapons inspectors that <clears throat> just recently said, yeah, it was a, it was a Russian-made uh, weapon in Salisbury. You know, a lot of them saying, well, why aren't we giving us the actual uh, details of where it was made? And then suddenly people become self-made experts, and that's what happens. It's this wider distrust of experts, too. Um and it's that that's the difference between scepticism and cynicism. You can be sceptical and you can distrust being told things at face value, but surely everyone as an individual, just like every MP, has a duty to themselves to look into something properly and look at all the sides of it instead of just something that might tally with your own prejudice. I think that's really what it's about.
4: Yeah. And it's not difficult with this. I mean, Iraq was dodgy dossiers, but I mean, Syrian people, because it's the first social media war and Syrians have like literally been live streaming themselves getting shot at for eight years. And it's all the evidence is there. And it's not, like I said, some dodgy dossier supplied by, you know, intelligence agencies. It's real people who have like screaming out for people to
1: help. Have you been getting... Online sort of trolling? That you know, started in the last 20 minutes. You're, yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, I started about 15 minutes ago. So, but have you been getting people sort of calling you a. I'm a
4: warmonger. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at no point in. I mean, it's the first piece of like four, and at no point in any of them am I advocating any form of war. It's
1: just a recognition that. But you have got that big frame picture of George Bush on your desk, uh, yeah,
4: and the one of uh, Tony Blair in front yeah, of yeah, the oil, yeah, yeah, which yeah, you yeah, love. Yeah yeah, 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 that's my yeah, favorite. Yeah, I took that. Yeah, um, no, <laughs> um, yeah. I, uh, no point am I saying that like we should go to war? And none of the people I've spoken to, well, actually, a lot of the Syrians I spoke to said that they would like somebody to get rid of Assad. But
1: didn't you speak to a Syrian of being a victim of a chemical attack?
4: Yeah, um, a guy who was in the. Um, 2013, Khan Sheikhum attack, who survived and now lives in Germany, and you know they they openly say they 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 want to get rid of Assad because they've you know they've he's tried to kill them yeah and but it's it's not even as, as far as from what I see it's not even as far that it's just acknowledging that there are there's a huge portion of the Syrian population who are being absolutely slaughtered and all of these kind of the Conspiracy theorists and the people that put all these, like you know, that won't believe any of the evidence, are denying that they exist by doing that, which I think is pretty atrocious, to be
1: honest. Thanks so much for coming in, Chris. And said, so there's, "There's going to be more of these kind of pieces, are there?" Fantastic. Yep. Make sure you look out online and what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Chris D. York. There we are. So send all the your D reviews. is really <laughs> important. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> lots of
2: Chris Yorks, but there isn't only one yeah. Chris D. York.
4: Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I've already had warmongers. So you'll have to think of something yeah. more imaginative.
1: So just uh, that Chris, and we look forward to reading more. Thank you very much. So from one sort of dark area of the internet to another, and there's an anti-Semitism debate in Parliament this week, which was called by Sajid Javid. Um, Jeremy Corbyn attended, but he did not speak, uh, but many Labour MPs, MPs on all sides, did speak. And here's um, clips of two Labour MPs who gave very, very powerful speeches. The first is Luciana Berger.
2: Within the Labour Party, anti-Semitism is now more commonplace, it is more conspicuous and it is more corrosive. Mm-hmm. And that's why I have no words for the people that purport to be both members and supporters of our party,
3: who use that hashtag, JC4PM, who attacked me in recent weeks for, for my comments, for the fact that I have um, attacked... Uh, uh, they've attacked me for
2: speaking at that rally against anti-Semitism, who've questioned my comments. That where I questioned the comments
3: endorsing that anti-Semitic mural who say I should be deselected or I've called it a smear.
1: And uh, after that was uh, the MP Ruth Smith.
3: What is so heartbreaking is the concerted effort in some quarters to downplay the problem. For every comment like those you've just heard, you can find ten people ready to dismiss it, yep. to cry smear, yeah, yeah, to say that yeah. we are weaponising anti-Semitism. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. Weaponising yeah, yeah, yeah. anti-Semitism. My family came to this country fleeing the pogroms in the 19th century. Of our relatives who stayed in Europe, none survived. We know what anti-Semitism is. We know where it leads. How dare these people suggest that we would try something so dangerous, so toxic, so formative to our lives and those of our families. How dare they seek to dismiss something so heinous. This
1: debate this week, it kind of got overshadowed a little bit, obviously, by Windrush and by Syria. And those two things hadn't have taken place and this would have been the parliamentary moment of the week. In some ways, perhaps it still it still was. These MPs standing up and saying these things, we know that there's this stuff out there. Hearing it said in such stark way was quite an emotional thing to hear. But Jeremy Corbyn didn't even stick around and listen. Is anything going to change? Is anybody who tweets with that hashtag, JC for PM, this horrible stuff, going to stop doing it because of this?
3: Well, no, is the answer. And I think... Um, until there's an end to the whataboutery around it as well. I mean, one MP, I think it was Karen Lee, stood up and said, as part of this debate, oh, isn't it all so bad that Anne-Marie Morris used the N-word? And yes, of course that's bad, that's horrendous, but that's not the issue at hand. And I think the deflection away from the problem by saying anti-Semitism and all and forms of racism is not helpful because anti-Semitism is a huge problem in and of itself, as we've seen, as evidenced by the stuff that Ruth and Luciana read out, which was really upsetting to listen to.
1: Corbyn didn't take part in the debate. His office said that because Sajid Javid led the debate, then Hmm. his opposite number, Charter Community Secretary Andrew Gwynne, responded. I mean, yeah, that's procedure, but Corbyn could have easily responded for Labour. Corbyn could have stood up with a dispatch box and said, I want to hear what's going to be said and I'll do something about it, couldn't he?
2: He could have done that, and um, I suppose if he was consistent with his own letter, which was, what, three, four weeks ago now, which was, as we've said before... Uh, on this podcast you know I thought it was actually quite an impressive letter calling out all those people who said this was being used as smears um, and actually ticking off all the all the myths that should be ticked off which is that somehow anti-capitalism um, then bleeds into Jews being rich and being anti-jewish um, and that should never be any excuse and similarly any excuse of talk about the Holocaust being linked to Israel what it's doing now so that was that was a, a good start but you can see why Jewish groups uh, uh, nervous if, if he won't actually step and take a leadership position as as he could have this week. I mean, to be fair to him, obviously the con- procedural convention is that, you know, y- you you're, you mirror the shadow minister who does the speaking, but he could have wound up the debate, I would have thought, quite easily. He could have had Andrew Gwynne start it and he could have wound it up. But, um, I mean, I thought actually, um, Corbyn looked rightfully furious in PMQs when Theresa May used this and definitely weaponized it to get herself out of a hole on Windrush. Now that was really really cynical of both Theresa May I thought. I thought she did much better at the end of PMQs when she she made generous tribute tribute to both Luciana Berger and um, Ruth Smith for their speeches. That that was quite heartfelt. But to use it to get herself out of a hole as she's under fire on Windrush I thought that just it just smelled, I really do.
0: And also, I think um, the the debate itself, I think, was well. It was quite heartbreaking. Some of the abuse some of the MPs um, have received, and the speeches were amazing. The, the debate itself, I think, you could say, was called in a way to be quite a, a, a political move to kind of highlight Labour's problems with anti-Semitism. Not doubting Sajid Javid's obvious, you know, distaste for anti-Semitism at all, but that holding it was in a way, I think, designed to expose Labour's problem. So I think you can understand them being Corbyn being a little bit. The feeling that it, was a, yeah. it was a political attack against but him. But having said that, I yeah. do think he should have spoken. I think, as Paul says, at the end he could have easily done that um, to avoid any accusation that he was disingenuous about his um, his, his words, strong words that saying that he's against anti-Semitism. And I also, remember, don't, don't forget, out.
2: at the Parliamentary Labour Party, the PLP, a few weeks back, John Mann, when he'd heard about this debate, he said why don't we call a mm. debate on anti-Semitism? Why are we leaving it to the Tories to call this debate? Why isn't it an opposition day debate? And that's a really good point. It's about being ahead of the story, being proactive. And, you know, just this week, the other thing that we published, I mean, Kate did uh, a long report of the of the, of the the emotional scenes in the Commons, uh, rightly emotional as those two MPs were speaking. But what we, we also published was a letter from Jenny Formby, the new Labour General Secretary, a letter to all MPs saying what she was going to do about it. And that's ultimately what this comes down to. Warm words of one thing. What are you actually going to do about it? And she said, "Look, we're going to crack down. We're going to change. We're going to review the procedures." The problem there is that some people within the Labour Party um, HQ think that this is shifting the blame they think the real blame for all these delays the fact that none of this has been tackled for years and years is that people on the nec some people have argued that this is you know over draconian to to discipline people some people who have been accused have had legal have been legal up to the eyeballs and they've now got this new procedure where they're going to have an in-house set of lawyers we'll see whether or not that makes any difference
1: okay let's uh move on now and are we We gonna have a quiz Paul, will you please contain yourself?
3: <laughs>
1: I hate some, it when you forget the there quiz. There is some housekeeping to take care of. Number Ooh. one, we've been nominated for two awards. Oh. Hooray. Thank you very much. We've been nominated for the Drum Online Media Awards, for best podcast. Yeah. Cool. May the 22nd, we found out about that. And the Digiday Award for best use of a podcast. <laughs> what <laughs> are, are you using it for? for? I don't know what we... What are we using What do you use for? it for? I what are we use it for, just to highlight it. I like that. I like but Yeah, it's so the best yeah. use of a podcast. Showing mm. off. Yeah. Just brilliant, Spend the 31st for that one. Uh, now there was as many many listeners took part in our online poll, yeah. like whether the quiz should stay or not. Yeah, there not was, your bots, was it? Roll, please. 11 votes to save the quiz, <laughs> 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 there was just one vote to get rid of it. That's massive. Dominic Charles, <laughs> I'm looking at you, right? <laughs> Blocked, so uh, the quiz is saved. Um, now it was a bit difficult for the quiz this week because it's like war, anti-Semitism, people getting deported, it's like there's not a lot of joy. Yeah, hard to quiz about, about that. So um, I decided, and I'm videoing Ned's reaction to this, everyone. Like, no. this one later <laughs> oh, up. God. This week's quiz, I thought we'd do something uh, to... Something which is really, really, really good news. Something really positive, right? The Manics have got a new album out. Oh, god! sake. <laughs> <laughs> uh, called Resistance is Futile. Oh, great. It's okay. also the name of this week's quiz. And these are is all gonna be Manic songs about the Manics <sighs> and politics. Yeah. I
3: cannot believe you have shoehorned this in.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine. It's not going to win any awards, is it?
1: So, let's go with the Mannix politics quiz. What are the options? Richie or Poorie? It's multiple quiz, really. (laughs) Question number one. The Mannix had a number two hit about which US political figure? Was it Richard Nixon? Was it Jimmy Carter? Or was it JFK? Richard
3: Nixon.
2: Richard Nixon. Nixon. Nixon.
1: It was. For the love of Richard Nixon. Question two. I can't believe we're doing this. <laughs> <I can't. laughs> You're allowed to play some music. You're probably not. No, anyway. I can't afford that. Bloody this country was founded on the principle that the primary role of government is to protect property from the majority. Is the opening sample <laughs> on the masses against the classes. Sure. But who said those lines? Oh was it Noam Chomsky? Was it Karl Marx? Or was it Margaret Thatcher?
0: Chomsky.
3: Uh, yeah, I agree with Ned. Say this quote again.
1: This country was founded on the principle the primary role of government is to protect
2: property from the majority. From the majority, ah, uh, right, it must be Chomsky. It
1: is Chomsky. Is that can, because you knew that I wouldn't think of Chomsky otherwise? Yeah. 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 And it's a very can manic I, thing. Can I
3: also laugh about how you said masses against the classes, like a proper southern... Well, that's just very... Masses funny. against the classes. Yeah, <laughs> it's Is rhymes. the correct pronunciation. <laughs>
1: and we <pay> on that. <laughs> <laughs> Question three. If you tolerate this, your I'm children not tole- will be next. <laughs> <laughs> Was written about which war? Oh, it's a pro-war song, yeah. often mis- misunderstood. Is <laughs> right? it so written David about Brent. the Korean War, <laughs> the Spanish Civil War, or the First Gulf War?
0: Come on, Spanish Civil War.
3: Korean.
1: Spanish Civil War. Spanish Civil War, correct. Damn it. Question four of twelve. <laughs> I'm just—it's not true, listener. I, I can't eat. Uh. I'm just a patsy. There's a song from "Send Away the Tigers," as you know, Ned. Yeah. Uh, but "I'm Just a Patsy" is a quote from which historical figure? John Wilkes Booth, Lee Harvey Oswald, or James Earl Ray? Oh, that's Poor really good Nate.
2: question. Yeah.
1: Lee
3: Harvey Oswald.
0: I'm just a patsy. The what was, what was the first one again? John Wilkes Booth. The guy you shot. Lincoln, yeah, yeah, him. I reckon it's him.
2: Yeah, what do you reckon? It sounds like John Wilkes Booth because Patsy. I, I don't think did did Harvey Oswald actually say anything. It was Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, yes. Uh,
1: and finally, <laughs> great. of Part One, uh, <laughs> who told the Mannix in 2001 that their concert was unlikely to be louder than war. Was it Saddam Hussein? Was it Hugo Chavez? Or was it
0: Fidel Castro? What year was it again sorry?
1: 2001 Must be Cas- Chavez. Must be Chavez. Castro, Castro. Castro. no the hell they are. Castro. Castro I think. But then they played in Cuba. It was Fidel Castro. Oh my god. Yes. Yeah.
2: Wow. yeah. I'm impressed.
1: Yeah.
3: Ned loves the Mannix. There we are. I did like the
0: Mannix until... Yeah, until you grew up.
3: Yeah. I kind of got over them when yeah. I was about 22. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Not didn't, me, though. No. Didn't
2: one of them have a go at Corbyn recently? In um, an interview. Yeah, James they've... Dean
1: Bradfield said that he heard someone else having a go at Corbyn saying that Corbyn didn't understand That was it.
2: Corbyn didn't understand the workers. That's yeah, it. but he said yeah. he
1: wanted to make hemp spoons made out of hemp or something yeah that was it but uh, yeah so
2: the new album is out now
1: "Resistance is just futile is this just so you can try and meet them if they want to send me tickets to their gig I haven't got any <laughs> right. please do right. I know Sean Moore's on Twitter the drummer hi, hi Sean. Sean so just yeah Paul is furious right now Then <laughs> that's the end of this week's podcast bye thank you very much everyone and uh, we'll be back next week <laughs> bye <laughs> <laughs>